Hey guys, are you thinking about starting your own podcast? If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me give you the details. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. True Crime Cat Lawyer. I'm your host, Elise, joined by my co-host, Winston the Cat. Every other week, Winston and I will bring you a new story about a murder, disappearance, or serial killer with a special focus on cases from our hometown, the Pacific Northwest. Just a reminder, this podcast contains content of a graphic nature that might not be suitable for all listeners, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, and crimes against animals and children. Listener discretion is advised. Before we get started with today's episode, I want to add an extra trigger warning. This episode does involve discussions of suicide as well as physical, emotional, and mental abuse. If those are subjects that are triggers for you, I would caution you to probably skip this episode. Today's episode is one with a lot of twists and turns. At the center of this story is Whidbey Island, a small island in the Puget Sound, a little over an hour from the city of Seattle, Washington. The most important person involved is the person who's often forgotten in retellings of this story, the victim, Russell Douglas. Unfortunately, because he hasn't been the focus of his own murder story, there's not a lot of background information on him. Russell's mother referred to him as a, quote, spoiled brat, end quote. And the two of them had a rocky relationship because Russell claimed his mother was super strict when he was a child. Russell met his future wife, Brenna, at a club when the two were teenagers in high school. The pair was introduced by one of Russell's sister, Holly's friends. Holly said she knew from the beginning that these two were not a match made in heaven. Russell and Brenna had nothing in common and they always fought. Brenna got pregnant in 1994 and Russell's mom hoped the two would realize that they could co-parent without being married. But despite their differences, Brenna and Russell were married a year after their son Jack was born in 1995. They also welcomed a daughter later on. Russell and Brenna also opened up a hair salon together on the island that was relatively successful. But by 2003, he and Brenna were separated, although not divorced. Everything I read made it clear that their relationship status was complicated, to say the least. 
Brenna said the two were working on reconciling, and Russell's own handwritten notes suggested he wanted to be reunited with his family again. You see, according to Brenna, Russell had cheated on her multiple times, was mentally abusive, and generally lived a lifestyle that she was not supportive of. Brenna would later tell investigators that Russell had moved out of the family's home in Langley, Washington in April 2003. He made child support and spousal support payments to her, and he saw the kids whenever she would let him. Russell was renting an apartment in Renton, Washington, about an hour and a half from Whidbey Island. But things were looking up for the family. Brenna had invited Russell to stay with her and the kids for Christmas. The family spent Christmas Day together, eating breakfast and opening presents. There was no way they could have anticipated that by the next evening, Russell would be dead. On December 26, 2003, Russell told Brenna he was going to run some errands and would be back later. Brenna and the kids went shopping and saw a movie. She last spoke with Russell around noon. She tried calling him a few times after that, but she couldn't get a hold of him. She didn't think a lot of it at the time. She just assumed Russell was back to his old ways, even though he was gone all night and the entire next day. Brenna would soon realize that that was not the case when police showed up at her front door around 11 p.m. on December 27, 2003. Joseph Duquette, a teacher in Bellingham, Washington, was not the first person to come across Russell's bright yellow geo-tracker on Wall Road on December 27, 2003, but he was the first person to call 911. When he approached the car, the dome light was on and the passenger door was open. But when he saw Russell's body slumped over with his head down in the driver's seat, Duquette knew he had to call the police. When police arrived, they noticed the driver's side window was rolled down a few inches and Russell's body was in full rigor. After searching the car, investigators found fragments of blue glass in Russell's hair from his sunglasses, a 380 caliber bullet shell casing between the driver's seat and the door, Russell's cell phone, ID, and checkbook, and his keys were still in the ignition. The initial thought, based on everything at the scene, was that this was a suicide. But that thought would soon change as investigators couldn't find any sign of the gun at the scene. There was no way Russell could have shot himself in the head and then thrown the gun somewhere away from his car. If he committed suicide, they would have found the gun in the car or at least near it. Now detectives had two difficult tasks ahead of them. The first would be notifying Russell's family of his death, and the second would be figuring out who murdered him. So police arrived at Brenna's house around 11 p.m. on the night of December 27th to tell her that Russell was dead. From the minute they arrived at her house, investigators felt like Brenna's reaction was off. She didn't question the police as to why they would be coming to her house so late at night, and she spent most of the time disparaging Russell. Brenna told police about their separation, that Russell had cheated on her with men and women, that he had a girlfriend in Tacoma, and that he was controlling and mentally abusive. Brenna also told police that both she and Russell owned 22 caliber guns, which obviously didn't match the bullet casing police found at the crime scene. At the time of his death, Russell was a zone manager at Tetra Tech, a consulting and engineering firm. He was also working toward his master's degree at the University of Phoenix, and he was only a few credits away from being finished.
during their initial meeting with Brenna, she never once asked police how Russell had died. The coroner determined Russell had died of a single gunshot wound to the head, likely at point-blank range, and he probably died instantly. The murder weapon was a 380 caliber automatic weapon, like a llama, Grendel, or a Bursa. Police believed Russell was lured to the area where he was murdered, given the location wasn't one a passerby would just stumble across. Police requested Brenna come into the station to give a formal interview. She provided the same statements as before, but when she was asked if she had any reason to kill Russell, she became very still and rigid, and she spoke in a tense, tight voice, according to investigators, which was totally different from the way she had been speaking prior to being asked that question. Investigators also interviewed Russell's sister, Holly Hunsicker. Because she was so close to her sister-in-law, she repeated a lot of the information Brenna had already told them about Russell's alleged verbal and psychological abuse and his alleged sexual proclivities. But she admitted to investigators that she didn't actually have any first-hand knowledge about these allegations. Holly also told investigators a little more about Brenna. She told them Brenna was very jealous and she kept constant tabs on Russell, including checking his various email accounts. Next up in the interview process were Russell's father, Jim, and his brother, Matthew. Jim told investigators he believed Russell was bipolar and he often suffered through bouts of depression and threatened suicide. Jim also told investigators that Russell may have been on Prozac at the time of his death. Matthew, a U.S. Army captain stationed in El Paso, Texas, told police that he and Russell weren't that close. But he also told them that his brother was a good dad, though he didn't seem to like being married. Police were able to track down Russell's former girlfriend, Marge, in Tacoma. She and Russell had met in a cocktail lounge in Ocean Shores, Washington. Russell had told Marge that he was divorced with two children, but he later came clean to her, telling her about the separation with Brenna. Marge told investigators she had ended things with Russell around the first week of December, and encouraged him to go back to his family and work things out. She didn't appear to have any hard feelings about the breakup and seemed to feel as though their relationship had run its course. Investigators had interviewed all of the people Russell was close to and hadn't really turned up anything. Interestingly, most of those people were surprised to find out that Russell had been murdered. They suspected, as police did initially, that Russell had committed suicide. Police began interviewing Russell's co-workers, both past and present. Overall, Russell appeared to be well-liked by the people he worked with. Prior to Tetra Tech, Russell had worked for the city of Mctilio. Employees who were interviewed there spoke about Russell's struggles with depression and his openness about his mental health struggles and mood swings. Some said he would withdraw from others during his depressive episodes, and again, police noted that people were puzzled by the murder, as suicide seemed like the more predictable outcome, unfortunately. After all of these interviews, the police sort of hit a dead end. There was really nothing to lead them in any direction of a person who might have a motive to kill Russell. In January 2004, an investigator from one of the companies Russell had a life insurance policy through contacted detectives. The insurance company was conducting its own investigation as part of their process to determine whether the $300,000 life insurance proceeds could or should be paid out. So this claim investigator had contacted Brenna 
and had concerns after he felt like Brenna was evasive in answering his questions and she refused to take a polygraph, which same, obviously, but still. The claim investigator told police that Russell's 2002 life insurance application claimed that Russell was an unemployed hairdresser, but the police knew that Russell was actually working for the city of Mactilio at the time. So why didn't he include that information on his application? Detectives told the claim investigator that Brenna hadn't been ruled out as a suspect. In addition to the $300,000 from this insurance company, Russell had another life insurance policy worth roughly $400,000. Despite the lack of any physical evidence or paper trail suggesting Brenna was involved with the murder, $700,000 would give anyone motive to kill someone. Brenna, who was terrible with money, already purchased a house, a new car, and an RV in the spring of 2004, all before she even had the insurance money. Naturally, by August 2004, she still hadn't received the insurance proceeds and she lost the house due to her failure to make payments on it. A judge ordered the $400,000 policy proceeds to be paid to Brenna in December 2005, but she lost the claim for the $300,000 policy because Russell lied on his application and he failed to mention pre-existing medical issues. Brianna retained an attorney and stopped cooperating with the investigation. Brenna stayed on the police's radar throughout the spring of 2004, but they continued to pursue other angles and potential suspects. One name that kept coming up in their investigation was Peggy Sue. Peggy Sue was a former employee of Russell and Brenna's salon, and she was the current landlord of Brenna's rental house in Langley. But detectives knew they had to talk to this Peggy Sue when they got Russell's cell phone records in May of 2004. There were several calls between Russell and Peggy Sue on December 23rd, 2003. In fact, investigators were able to determine that Peggy Sue's number was only added to Russell's phone on that very day. The two had no communication, at least on their cell phones, prior to that date. This was at least a little suspicious to detectives, so they called the number listed in the records and got a hold of Peggy Sue. She told detectives she was in the area on December 23rd visiting family. Peggy Sue contacted Russell to ask him to deliver a Christmas present from her to Brenna. During this initial phone call with police, Peggy Sue claimed she didn't see Russell, but then she changed her story, telling police that she saw Russell at his Renton apartment on December 23rd and gave him the present for Brenna at that point. Investigators weren't really sure what to make of Peggy Sue at this point, but they knew they would want to talk to her again in the future. On July 15, 2004, Brenna and her attorney turned over phone records from December 2003 and January through February 2004, as well as bank statements from December 2003 and Brenna's client list from December 22nd through December 27th of 2003. Brenna continued to refuse investigators' request to take a polygraph. After reviewing the phone records she provided, detectives learned that Peggy and Brenna had talked a lot in December of 2003 before the 26th. But after Russell's murder, there were only 11 calls between the two. This was curious to police, but it wasn't the hard evidence they needed to make their case. The investigation felt like it was stalling out and police were quickly running out of leads to pursue. 
Then, on July 26, 2004, investigators got a call from a detective in Florida. This detective received a call from a man who had information about an unsolved homicide from December 2003. After the investigators spoke to one another, they figured out the mystery caller was talking about Russell's murder. Could this be the big break they'd been waiting for? The Florida detective maintained a rapport with the anonymous caller and passed along the information as she received it. The anonymous man provided information about the murder that wasn't reported in the media or other news outlets, which led the detectives to believe that he was credible. The caller told police his friend and Peggy lured Russell to the place where he was shot and killed by telling him that they had a Christmas present for his wife. So far, this tracked with police's earlier interviews with Peggy Sue. Once he felt more comfortable with investigators, the mystery caller told them his friend was James Hudden, better known as Jim, and the two had grown up together on Whidbey Island. After revealing this information, the caller then identified himself as Bill Hill. He was living in Port Charlotte, Florida, and was one of Jim Hudden's best friends. Bill Hill didn't have any criminal history, and police found out he was in a band with Jim. So, we know how Peggy Sue was connected to Russell, but where did Jim fit in all of this? Now, bear with me, because the story of Peggy Sue and Jim is a little convoluted, and it takes us down a rabbit hole or two before we can pick back up with Russell's story. Jim and Peggy Sue both grew up on Whidbey Island, but the two were about a decade apart in age. Jim didn't come from a happy home life. His stepfather was allegedly abusive to both Jim and his mother. When Jim finally reached the age where he could stand up for himself and his mother, Jim's stepfather died of natural causes. According to some sources, Jim never really worked through this anger or processed these issues. Despite this, Jim met his first wife, Patty, in 1980. Patty was working as a lineman for a phone company at the time and Jim joined her there before moving into the software industry. He wrote a software program for Microsoft, which was eventually purchased by Bill Gates. Jim and Patty were able to buy a nice house and travel the country before they settled down in Florida. They burned through all of their Microsoft money and had to return to the Pacific Northwest to work as managers at the Chevy Chase Golf Course near Port Townsend, Washington. But it was only a quick stint and they returned to Florida. Jim and Patty divorced in 1994 after Jim cheated on her. He bounced back quickly, though, and married his second wife, Jean. The two stayed in Florida, and Jim began drinking more, and friends thought that the two might be doing drugs together. Peggy Sue, on the other hand, had a very different childhood. She was doted on as a baby, as she was the only biological child of her mother, Doris, and her father, Jimmy. But she grew up with eight half-siblings. In 1984, after her parents divorced and remarried, Peggy Sue and her mother moved to Whidbey Island. After high school, Peggy joined the Navy in 1988, working as a highly skilled aircraft mechanic before she was honorably discharged in 1992. But while she was in the Navy, Peggy married her first husband, Tony Harris. He was a preacher, but the marriage didn't last long because Peggy admitted to her sisters that she really only married Tony to get under her dad's skin. She also married her second husband in 1991 prior to leaving the Navy. Kelvin Thomas was a personal trainer, and he was well-respected on Whidbey Island. 
Calvin and Peggy had two daughters, Mariah and Taylor. Peggy eventually went to beauty school, opened up her own salon, and bought the house in Langley. Calvin ended up having an affair and he left Peggy Sue, but Peggy insists the divorce was friendly, which appears to be at least partially true because Calvin would stick by her through the Russell Douglas murder investigation. Some other high notes in Peggy's background include entering and winning the Miss Washington pageant. But June 2002 was the moment when Jim and Peggy really became part of each other's lives. Jim was good friends with Peggy's sister, Sue, and her husband, Neil. Unfortunately, Neil passed away in 2002. After the funeral, Peggy and Jim became an item. Jim in particular seemed to be madly in love with Peggy, even though he was still married to Jean at the time. The couple was living together in Nevada in the summer of 2003, but there was little to no money coming in, and they were putting everything on credit cards. So, with that backstory in mind, we can get back to Russell's murder. So, Bill Hill and Jim had lunch together on August 2nd, 2004, so that Jim could say goodbye to him. Jim told Bill he was heading out of town because investigators were looking for him. Bill called police and told them all about this interaction. Detectives knew they had to act fast before Jim left Florida for good. They immediately obtained search warrants for Jim's house in Florida and Peggy Sue's house in Nevada. When police went to Jim's house in Florida, they started with a casual interview at his house. They made it clear to Jim that he was not under arrest and he could stop the interview at any point. But Jim waived his Miranda rights and answered the police's questions. He told investigators he never owned a gun and he drove Peggy's car to Washington State while she flew to SeaTac with her daughters over the Christmas weekend in December 2003. Jim said he and Peggy stayed at his friend Dick Deposit's house from December 19th until about the 22nd or the 23rd. He claimed not to recognize Russell or his car, but he later told police that he took a gift for Brenna to Russell's apartment in Renton. Jim later went to the police station and gave a formal recorded statement, which was pretty similar to the interview at his house. After he gave this statement, he left Florida, which detectives wouldn't discover until much later. Based on the information they had obtained from their informant Bill and the interview with Jim, detectives provided a press release to the media on August 18, 2004, naming Jim and Peggy Sue as persons of interest in Russell's murder. To their surprise, the press release worked. Detectives received a call from law enforcement in New Mexico, letting them know that a man named Keith Ogden had turned in a 380 caliber Bursa pistol, which might be their missing murder weapon. Keith was a retired police officer from Oregon who met Jim when the two lived in Vegas. Six months prior to Russell's murder, Jim had asked Keith if he had a gun that Jim could buy from him. At the time, Keith didn't have anything he could sell to Jim, but he told police that Jim came back a few days later with the Bursa and asked Keith to show him how to use it. After the murder, Jim brought the gun to Keith and asked him to take care of it for him. Ballistics experts were able to match the grooves and striations to those on the bullet recovered from Russell. Detectives served a search warrant on Peggy in Nevada on August 31, 2004. She came down to the station with her attorney for a formal interview. 
Unlike her prior phone call with detectives, this time, Peggy told police that both she and Jim gave the present to Russell at his apartment in Renton. She said both she and Jim left the island after her last hair appointment on December 23rd, but had to return on December 26th to return the spare key to Dick Deposit's home. At some point during their return trip, Jim left her at Deposit's house to go get cigarettes, and he was gone for 30 to 45 minutes, according to Peggy. But she would later change her story and say that Jim was only gone for 15 minutes. After Jim returned, the two took the 1245 ferry to see their friend Bill Marlowe for the holidays. Police attempted to verify this information, and they found out that no such ferry existed, although there was a ferry that left at 1.30 p.m. As for visiting Bill Marlowe, well, detectives headed over to Port Townsend, and Marlowe confirmed he didn't see Jim or Peggy over the Christmas holiday. Police later confronted Peggy with these revelations, and her only response was they, meaning Bill and his wife, must have forgotten. Detectives attempted to verify whether or not Jim and Peggy stayed at Dick Deposit's Whidbey Island home for the holidays in December 2003. When they interviewed Deposit, he said he may have seen the couple around December 21st, but he couldn't be sure whether or not they stayed in his guest home. Interestingly, though, when investigators mapped out the route from Deposit's home to the crime scene, the two locations were less than 10 minutes apart, which fit well within the amount of time Peggy said Jim was gone to get cigarettes. In September 2004, Brenna Douglas brought the gift basket she received from Peggy into the police station. It was mostly filled with spa gifts and hair products, nothing really illuminating about the contents. Several days later, a temporary felony warrant and a be on the lookout or BOLO alert were issued for Jim. This is when investigators discovered he had disappeared. Meanwhile, the search warrant on Peggy's Nevada home revealed a few interesting pieces of evidence. Police found an operation manual for the Bursa Thunder handgun in her home, and they found both Jim and Peggy's fingerprints on the manual. This was circumstantial evidence at best, but it solidified to police that they were on the right track. Here's where the story ends, at least for a long time. What I mean is police couldn't find Jim from 2004 to 2011. And during that time, they didn't have any physical or forensic evidence linking either Jim or Peggy Sue to Russell's murder. So the case sat cold for seven long years, with no justice for Russell, no resolution, and no answers for his family. But in 2011, investigators finally caught a break, and they seized on the opportunity presented to them. Jim's second wife, Jean, was a drug user. She had been in and out of jail for petty crimes and drug offenses over the years. Well, in 2011, she was arrested on drug charges yet again, only this time she faced serious prison time if she got convicted. So the Florida police made Jean an offer. If she gave up Jim, they would give her a heavily reduced sentence. Jean really had no choice but to cooperate with them. She told police that Jim was in Mexico teaching guitar. He had been there since 2004, and... Jean had known where he was the entire time. Jean also told police Peggy had known where Jim was the whole time too, 
she kept in touch with Jean and even traveled with her to Mexico to give Jim money. In addition to giving up Jim's location, Jean told police that Jim had confessed to her shortly after they interviewed him back in September of 2004. Jim's alleged motive for the crime was seeking revenge against Russell for abusing his wife and kids, which wasn't true, but it's not clear if Jim actually knew that or not. Jim was arrested in Veracruz on June 6, 2011. He waived extradition, and on July 9th, he pleaded not guilty to the charge of first-degree murder. His bail was set at $10 million. Shortly after Jim was taken into custody, a warrant was issued for Peggy Sue's arrest. Unbeknownst to her, she had been placed under surveillance by New Mexico law enforcement. She was also arrested on first-degree murder charges, and she waived extradition to Washington. Her bail was originally set at $5 million, but was later reduced to $500,000. Her mother, Doris, put up her home in Langley, and Peggy put up her Vegas home as collateral so Peggy could be released on bail in early September 2011. Peggy stipulated that she would reside with her mother in Langley and wear a GPS ankle monitor until her trial. Everyone prepared themselves for what would likely be a sensational trial. The prosecution had three key witnesses they would be calling to testify at Peggy Sue's trial. Bill Hill, Jim's childhood best friend, Jean Hudden, Jim's second wife, and their secret star witness, Peggy's half-sister, Brenda. So how did Brenda get herself wrapped up in all of this, you might ask? Well, Brenda received a call from Jim and Peggy sometime in 2003. At the time, the two offered to get rid of Brenda's then-husband so she wouldn't have to go through the process of divorcing him. Brenda understood Peggy and Jim's offer to mean that they would kill her husband. She told investigators about this phone call in 2006, but she never told anyone else about it. Prosecutors somehow had convinced Brenda to testify about this phone call at her sister's trial. But, like Bill Hill, Brenda was conflicted about giving her testimony. Peggy had let Brenda live with her for a while in Vegas, and she was her sister. Brenda was also scared of Peggy. Not only that, but Brenda had a lot of personal issues stemming from the murder of her mother when she was only four years old. Brenda suffered PTSD and would scream in her sleep and have nightmares about her mother's murder. She never really learned how to cope with the trauma she experienced. By the time Peggy's trial rolled around in September of 2011, Brenda was all alone after two failed marriages, and she was waiting for some adjustments to her antidepressants as she was experiencing tremors and insomnia as a result of her medication being off. Unfortunately, on September 18, 2011, Brenda committed suicide. Peggy's trial was set to begin just four days later on September 22nd. Brenda's death was a huge setback for both the trial and Peggy's family. Peggy's trial was postponed for four weeks. Then, in one of the more mind-baffling aspects of this case... On October 3rd, 2011, Peggy's attorney asked that she be allowed the freedom to travel to tie up some loose ends before her trial. Um, what? Peggy wanted to travel to five states over the course of two weeks. And here's the list of things that Peggy needed to check off her list before she would be ready for trial. 
Peggy needed money for her defense, so she needed to sell her house in New Mexico. She needed to get her winter clothing. She needed to winterize her houseboat. She needed to make sure that the lawn and garden at her Nevada home met the HOA requirements or else she would be charged a fine. She wanted to go see her dentist in Nevada. She wanted to get her car so she could run errands and attend court. She wanted to retrieve items to use in her defense, and she wanted to attend Brenda's funeral in Idaho. The only thing I find even remotely reasonable on that list is her request to attend Brenda's funeral and maybe the retrieval of items to use in her defense. Maybe. Obviously, the prosecutor thought the same thing because he was extremely opposed to Peggy's requests. He told the judge that Peggy hadn't been released on her own recognizance, and she shouldn't be treated as if she had been. There was no reason other family members and friends couldn't take care of most of the things on that list for her. Not to mention, there were areas along her travel route where the GPS ankle monitor could lose signal, so Peggy would be long gone before police even knew she was missing. Despite all of his legitimate, common-sense arguments, the judge allowed Peggy to take her little trip across America as long as she provided a copy of her itinerary to the prosecutor. Can you say white privilege? Miraculously, Peggy returned to Washington and was arraigned and formally charged with first-degree murder on October 31st, 2011. Peggy, of course, pled not guilty to the charge. The trials of Jim and Peggy were delayed and rescheduled several times. The prosecution decided to try Jim first, so his trial began on July 11th, 2012. Russell's wife, Brenna, was among the first of the witnesses to testify. She testified that although she had taken out a restraining order against Russell prior to his death, she had ultimately withdrawn the request. She also testified that she talked about the restraining order with Peggy at some point. The prosecution didn't call Jean to the witness stand as she couldn't testify against Jim due to spousal privilege. Bill Hill and Dick Deposit, Jim's childhood friends, both testified. Prosecution also presented evidence that Peggy and Jim's fingerprints were found on the gun manual retrieved from Peggy's home in Vegas. The defense's primary witness was an expert they hired to testify about blood spatter. In her book, Anne Rule described this guy as, quote, esoteric, end quote, and she said that the jury didn't really follow anything he said. They actually seemed kind of annoyed that they had to listen to him at all. And when the defense expert was cross-examined by the prosecutor, he had to admit that he charged a $35,000 fee for his testimony, and he didn't have any kind of medical degree. Although he did testify, he had a PhD in philosophy. Not surprisingly, Jim didn't testify in his own defense. After closing arguments from both sides, The jury was sent to deliberate at 1 p.m. on July 20th, 2012. By 11 a.m. on July 23rd, the jury had reached its verdict. They found Jim guilty of murder with the aggravating circumstances of using a firearm and the victim being particularly vulnerable, meaning that Russell had no idea he was being lured to his death and he didn't have the chance to defend himself. Brenna, Russell's wife, was noticeably absent from this proceeding. Russell's father, his brother Matthew, his stepfather, his mother Gail, and his sister Holly 
all gave victim statements at Jim's sentencing. As you can imagine, although there was some peace of mind in knowing who was responsible for killing Russell, there was still a lot of pain and sadness at the loss of their son and brother. Jim was sentenced to 80 years in prison. Brenna didn't give a victim statement at the hearing as she was once again absent from the proceeding. She later told the prosecutor she didn't want to be part of the media circus that surrounded this case. Now that they had their conviction of Jim, prosecutors were ready to proceed with Peggy's trial. When she arrived for a pre-trial proceeding, Peggy revealed she had had lip fillers done and had her eyebrows and lip liner tattooed on her. You know, just in case she went to prison and wouldn't be able to use makeup for a while. At this pre-trial proceeding, it became clear to prosecutors that Jim wouldn't be the tell-all witness that they were hoping for. Jim invoked his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination throughout the proceeding, and the prosecution knew it was unlikely that they'd get him to incriminate Peggy on the stand. Going to trial would be risky for both sides. The prosecution had a fair amount of circumstantial evidence to present, but unlike Jim's trial, they had no physical evidence. They didn't have Jim's testimony, and Bill Hill was unavailable as well. He was in critical condition in a Florida hospital, and he couldn't travel or testify. The prosecution still had Jean, but she was far less credible without Bill Hill's corroboration, given her long drug history. There was a chance Peggy could win at trial. And if she did, double jeopardy would attach, and she could never be retried again. So the prosecutor and Peggy's attorney came to a deal just three days before her trial was set to begin. Peggy pled guilty to first-degree criminal assistance involving first-degree murder. This carried the maximum sentence of four years under Washington law. Peggy had agreed to serve the maximum sentence, and a judge also ordered her to pay $800 in court costs, fines, and fees. As far as I can tell, Peggy served her entire sentence, and she should have been released sometime in 2016 or 2017, but I don't really have any information on her after her sentencing. And that's the story of the murder of Russell Douglas and the two lovers who received vastly different punishments for their role in his murder. As always, I would love to discuss this case further with you. Do you think Russell's wife, Brenna, was somehow involved? Do you think Peggy should have been allowed to tie up loose ends before going on trial for murder? Do you think her four-year sentence was justice? Let me know in the social media posts for this episode or head over to our Facebook discussion group. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Please subscribe and leave a review if you like the show. You can email case suggestions or comments to truecrimecatlawyer at gmail.com and you can find us on Twitter at truecrimecatlaw and on Instagram at True Crime Cat Lawyer. You can also find our discussion group on Facebook by searching for True Crime Cat Lawyer in the group section. If you're interested in learning more about my co-host, you can check out her Instagram at WinstonTheCatPDX. Thanks again for listening and stay tuned for our next episode.